Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, if you haven't already done so. And while you're doing that, I will uh, introduce the message. The title of the message is, Why Aren't My Prayers Working? Have you ever been in a circumstance or a situation? All of us have, I am sure. If you've been a believer for any length of time. When there was something that you asked of God, God, I ask for this provision. God, I ask for this deliverance. God, I ask for this need to be met. And even though you pray, and even though you claim Scripture, and I have heard preachers, I've heard some just recently that were talking about all you have to do is name it and claim it, and God's got a miracle for you. And I think there's some truths that we need to grasp and that we need to understand about when we talk to God and when we ask God to do something for us. What can we expect? Why sometimes does it seem that our prayers don't work? Especially when it's God who commands us to pray. When it's God who invites us to pray. When it's God who makes promises in our prayer life. In Psalm 34, the psalmist David writes, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, and He delivers them out of all their troubles. Is that a promise we can claim? Seems like it. What about 1 John 5, 14 and 15? This is the confidence we have when we approach God in prayer that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. And then, of course, you've got in Mark, Jesus speaking, and He's teaching his disciples and others about prayer. And he said, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And then, of course, his promise to the disciples in the upper room If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I will tell you that there is not a lie in any of those statements. Amen? God is true. God is faithful. He is just. God's word is true. He wrote it. He, through these godly men, he inspired it. He has preserved it. And all these promises are true. However, many times we will take a statement and take it out of its context. And make it apply in ways that it should not apply. We need to understand what God teaches us about prayer in the context of God's character. We need to understand what God teaches us about prayer in the context of our need. And in the context of our glory. And in the context of those verses. You be careful if you say, well, you just don't have enough faith or God would answer that prayer. You be careful. Because there are times when we fervently pray for something that we know is in general alignment with God's will. And the answer is no. In Acts chapter 12, the early church has been established and now they're becoming persecuted. In Acts chapter 12, the first five verses, we'll read all the way through at least 5a. We're going to look at some unanswered prayers. About that time, Herod, and by the way, I'm going to read this with commentary, so just hold on. Uh, This is Herod Agrippa. This is not Herod the Great who tried to kill baby Jesus. This is his grandson. Uh, This is not Herod Antipas who uh, killed John the Baptist and who mocked Jesus along with Pilate. This is uh, Herod the Great's grandson. He is a king, served from about 
uh, he's king of Judea. He served from about A.D. 36, 37, all the way up to A.D. 44 when he died, which we're going to read about when we get to the end of this chapter. Okay? And he was very popular with the Jews. He was affirmed by Rome, but he was popular with the Jewish national rulers. And we'll see one of the reasons why here in just a moment. So that's the Herod we're talking about. And about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. You need to think the Taliban and the Christians in Kabul. Okay? He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And let's go back. This is James who was in a fishing boat when Jesus walked by and said, Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. This is James who walked through Galilee along the shores of Galilee and saw miracles and spent time with Jesus and listened to his teaching. This is James, the brother of John, who came to Jesus with their mom and said, we want to sit on your right hand, on your left hand in the kingdom of God. This is James and John and Peter, one of his inner circle, who Jesus woke up in the night and took him up to the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus in his glory. This is James who was with the 120 in the upper room at Pentecost. This is James who preached, one of those who preached the gospel as the apostles preached. This is one of the apostles who taught and invested the word of God. Everything that they had learned of Jesus, they taught day after day, house to house, as the church grew in Jerusalem. This is one of the apostles that when the persecution came, they didn't leave. They weren't scattered. They stayed in Jerusalem. And... The summary of his life is, the end of his life, is he, Herod, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And that's it. It's not even a sentence. It's a clause. Now, I think there's some things in there that we need to grasp and we need to understand. But let's go ahead and read the, read the passage. We'll come back before we preach. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. They were glad when I got James. Peter's next. And we know Peter, no introduction necessary, correct? This was during the days of unleavened bread. This is a, a Jewish feast. And when he had seized them, he put him in prison. This is Peter is now in prison, just as James was, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. He really wanted to make sure this guy didn't escape. Four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, let's pause right there. James at this time, again, just looking at the dates, James at this time was probably in his mid-30s. As a Jewish man and as a leader, he probably had a wife and kids, though that's not explicitly in the text. He was indeed beloved of Jesus. And I can tell you right now, I'll guarantee you, he was beloved of the church. Do you think they were praying for him? When Herod laid hands on him, do you think the church was praying for him? Imagine if someone were to come in here, armed, pick one of you, Oregon's there, I'll just pick on Oregon. Imagine if the next thing you heard was that Oregon had been arrested for being a Christian and was scheduled for either imprisonment or execution. Would you be praying for him and for his family? Would they do any less? Absolutely not. It was their habit, as we'll see in just a few minutes. And so they were praying. They were praying, I believe, fervently, as was their pattern in this scripture. And yet, summarized in just that clause, Herod put him to death with a sword. We have the reality 
that God said no. Here's the first thing I think we see clearly in this text. And you guys can write these sentences out. There should be a way to do that on your listening guide. Sometimes believers suffer terribly, even when we pray for deliverance. One of the things that we see more and more clearly as we go through this chapter is that ordinary men and women of the church in Jerusalem, they understood something that we must understand too, and that is that we don't place our trust in our praying. We place our trust in God to whom we pray. Does that make sense? Sometimes we treat prayer as a formula. And sometimes we say, well, he promised it. If we just ask, he's going to do it. That's all we promised. He promised it. And so somehow, claiming that promise makes us in charge of God. God, I need you to do my will. I think it's your will. I think it's in alignment with your will. But here's my expectation. Not, all, not simply my request. I am making a fervent request, but also an expectation. But here's one thing that they got and they understood. And we'll see this again even more deeply later when they're praying for Peter when he is in prison. And that is, you cannot predict what God is going to do. Amen? God acts according to the counsel of his own will. But then, why pray at all? Because God has designed prayer and uses prayer to accomplish his will for his glory, even when we don't understand his will. Sometimes, believers suffer terribly, even when we pray for deliverance. And sometimes, to make matters worse, the wicked, those who are not believers, those who reject the name of Christ, seem to flourish. The preacher gets this in the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 7.15. He says, in my vain life, or my futile life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. <coughs> Why do the righteous die early while the wicked continue to live? What about Ecclesiastes 8, 14, the next chapter over? There is a vanity, a futility, a frustration, he says, that takes place on the face of the earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are things that the wicked deserve that it seems the righteous get. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. There are righteous rewards that it seems the wicked get and he goes on to say this also is futility or vanity in your listening guide there are questions application questions and there can be a really source of frustration for many of us now we're going to come back to where we get peace on this and where we get some understanding on this the first point is simply we don't depend upon our prayers we don't put our trust in our prayers we put our trust in god prayers are not a formula to bend god to our will they're not simply something that we do to make things happen that we think should happen, that we want to happen, and certainly that are even in agreement with the general revealed will of God that should happen, what we put our trust in is a God that sometimes doesn't make any sense to us. Asaph, with psalmist, wrote a song. It's Psalm 73, and in your listening guide and application questions, I gave you that. And what I want you to do is to read through that chapter. I will not take time to do it today. But the whole first part of that chapter is, You're our God. Why do the wicked flourish and we struggle? 
by the time he gets to the end of that chapter, he's gotten some illumination, some understanding, and his heart is at peace. I want you guys to work through that. But here's what I want you to understand. We can't always predict. We can never predict. We don't know who, what the future holds. We know who holds the future. Sometimes things happen that seem so unfair. You guys know Kenny and Melissa Comstock? I don't know if you knew them. They served on our staff, youth director, Kenny, when he was dating Melissa. They also were uh, at a a couple of churches, one up in TR and then one out in, in Easley. Good, good folks. Kenny went on and finished his education, or at least finished his master's, and was about to, uh, was working hard on a Ph.D. God called him to be the pastor, uh, executive pastor, and one of the teaching pastors at uh, a church in Odessa, Texas. Three little kids, cute as they can be. Kenny and Melissa, just a great couple, 34, 35 years old. Were driving on the road, going to a family gathering, and they had automobile accident. Kenny and Melissa were both killed on the scene. All three of their children survived. Here's a guy who had given his life to God's service. Here's a guy who had been used by God and prepared and equipped by God. And he was young and energetic and enthusiastic. i got to tell you, he had a lot to commend him. He was doctrinally sound. He had a passion for people. And you think, Lord, why? This makes no sense. He could have had another 35, 40 years of fruitful ministry with Melissa. They could have went through and, and, and raised children, their children, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Why do these things happen? And here's what I have to tell you. I don't know. God knows. And when I come to the things that I don't know, I always have to go to the things that I do know. The things that these Christians in this early church, as they see their leaders killed and arrested, knew. First of all, that we pray, that we pray fervently for God's will. But our trust isn't in our prayers as though they were a formula. We place our trust in our living God who loves us. He cares for us. I know He loves us. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on Him, for He cares for you. Ephesians 5, 29, no one hates his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares and loves the church. Nahum 1, 7, the Lord is good and a refuge in times of troubles. He cares for those who trust in Him. Psalm 55, 22, cast your cares upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will uphold the righteous. You see Psalm 103 again and again and again. We have the declaration of God's love for us. But I've got to tell you, it's more than words. We have the demonstration of God's consistent love for us. And the greatest demonstration of that is that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God and unrighteous, Christ died for us. If you're a believer, if you've come to Him in repentance and faith, even when you suffer as Paul suffered, even when you suffer as James's family suffered, and this early church suffered, you come down to the conviction that God is trustworthy. Even when we don't understand. C.H. Spurgeon years ago wrote 
in one of his messages, God is too good to be unkind. He doesn't play games. He's not capricious. He's too good to be unkind. He is too wise to make mistakes. And when you cannot trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. We trust him. We follow a God that many times we do not understand. But the story goes on. Herod, of course, like, knows that the Jews like it when he killed James. And so he captures Jesus, uh, Peter. He puts him in prison. He's got four squadrons of guards around him. Let's pick it back up here in verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, here comes Peter. You're next for the sword. When Herod's about to bring him out that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Herod wanted to make sure this guy did not escape. By the way, what was Peter doing? Was he awake and nervous and anxious, according to this text? He's asleep. He was resting. I'm sure he was fatigued. I'm sure he was tired. But he was able to rest. And by the way, he also wasn't looking for an angel. I want you to get that. He was asleep. But behold, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. The angel had to wake Peter up. He struck Peter on the side, and he woke him, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Get dressed, put on your sandals. And Peter did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out, and Peter followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought it was a dream. He thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the old city. That's security system there. But the angel walks right through it. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. The next point, I think, that is very clear in the passage is that sometimes our prayers are answered in dramatic ways. Sometimes God intervenes in dramatic ways. This God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine, sometimes He answers prayer in dramatic ways. Peter sleeping soundly, no anxiety evidence in the text, no evidence that Peter is expecting to be delivered. And when the angel comes, Peter thinks this is a dream that he's having. And note, Peter wasn't rebuked for his lack of faith. The angel doesn't say, why are you surprised? Why didn't you believe me? It's not a lack of faith. This has a hard time. You can't make this prosperity gospel work with this text of Scripture. You can't make this name it and claim it, say it, and it's yours. Preaching fit with this passage of Scripture. Still, what is taking place is that the church is praying fervently. We know that God uses prayers to accomplish His purpose, both in our hearts and in the world around us. We know that we are called to let Him know our requests and our needs because He loves us and He prays for us and He cares for us and prayer matters. And God's answer here, and we're going to talk about the prayer meeting in a minute, but God's answer here is Peter's deliverance. And it's not until the angel leaves him on the street that he knows this, this really happened. And so here's a, just an observation. 
Guys, we need to remember that with God, nothing is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. I don't know how big your prayers are. I don't know how grand they are. But I will tell you that when we are praying in His name, and this is not a comprehensive study on the doctrine of prayer and what it means to pray and a strategy for praying. This is just observations from this text. But when we pray in His name, according to His will, sometimes we pray for little bitty things when there are grand things that God desires to accomplish. Nothing is impossible with God. Sometimes our prayers are too small. Sometimes our prayers are simply self-centered. Sometimes our prayers are simply focused upon ourselves in james chapter 4 he says you 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 have not because you ask not and when you ask you're just asking to make yourself happy you're just asking to satisfy your own passions with no sense that we have a creator holy sovereign divine god who is worthy of all of our praise worthy of our life worthy of all glory all times everywhere and that needs to be our focus His will, His desire, His love for us. And we need to humble ourselves and yield ourselves to Him. This is not about me simply getting a better job or a better career. So I have resources to spend on me or my family or so that life is easier, even so that I can give more. This is more would be along the lines of, Father, I am all yours. Increase my sphere of influence for the gospel, whether it's in this place or that place. Whatever you guide, whatever you do, be glorified in my life. God is able to do the impossible. God does desire that we pray fervently, that we ask for big big things. And so let's pick this up in um, Acts chapter 12, verse 12. When Peter realized that this was real, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So John Mark's mom's house. Peter gets there, and there were many gathered together, and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, and she recognized Peter's voice. And in her joy, she left him standing right there. She didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported, Hey, Peter's standing at the gate. And they said to her, what did they say to her? You are out of your mind. That's exactly right. You're nuts. You're crazy. I think maybe they're like, I I think you've been praying too fervently. Why don't you sit down and get some water and a snack? Because they just, they don't believe. You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. It's a vision you're having. But Peter continued knocking. Isn't that a great picture? They're praying, Lord, deliver Peter. God delivers Peter. They're inside praying, and he's right at the door saying, let me in. I think Luke knows the humor of the situation. But when they opened and they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, you tell these things to James. This is not the James who was killed with the sword, obviously. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who is one of the leaders and the pastors of the church in Jerusalem. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now, I love the fervency of their prayers. I don't think we can condemn them as being people with lack of faith. Have you ever prayed for something and God did it and you're just kind of overwhelmed and somewhat surprised? And you think to yourself, why should I be surprised? I think it's great to be surprised by the grace of God. Don't you? 
I think it's great to be surprised by the goodness of God. I think it's great for us to see and rejoice and be surprised when God does, does good things. I don't condemn them. I don't think this is a lack of faith. I just think they know that their prayers are their obedience. God answers is His grace. And they're enjoying the grace of God. They're surprised Peter gets out. There's a couple of things I want to mention here just really quick. Um, the angel did a miracle in letting Peter out and leading him out and delivering him. But the angel didn't teleport him into the presence of Mary's house and the Christians gathered there. He walked him out through the guards and he left him in the street. And it was up to Peter to make his way to Mary's house, John Mark's mom. It was up to Peter to avoid detection from Herod. Verse 17 says, and he went away from there. He didn't tempt God by going back to the temple to preach because God, it was not the instruction that God given him. I think the third observation just to make quickly is that trusting God includes living by the wisdom and the ordinary means that God gives us. Does that make sense? We trust God and we pray for miracles, but miracles are an exceptional intervention of God. Is God able to do miracles? Yes. Do you get one every day and you just need to claim it? No. What you need to be doing every day is walking in obedience to God, fully committed to Him, obedient to Him, making your request known to Him, casting your cares upon Him. And there are times when He will miraculously intervene and there are other times that he will not but in either case you don't forsake wisdom and ordinary means that he has already given you in his word a very simple application of this you pray for healing and go to the doctor you pray for safety and lock the door you pray to pass the test and study do you understand what i'm saying uh, miracles are those intervention it's not a lack of faith it is a demonstration of our trust when God intervenes miraculously but it does not mean that we forsake the wisdom that he gives us in his words miracles are the exceptional intervention of God as we're walking in obedience to him daily I'm not going to take time today I'm going to get my talking just a little bit I'm not going to take time today but there are four major movements of miracles in scripture if you look at God's suspension of natural law, if you look at God supernaturally moving and working, how many miracles do we have a record of in the Scripture? If you take creation out of the count, you only have about 112, depending upon who counts. 112 suspensions of natural law where God miraculously moved, and it includes this one right here. It doesn't mean that God did, didn't do more. It doesn't mean that he doesn't continue and not able to do miracles. It simply means that they are an exceptional, not the norm. They are an extraordinary intervention that God is pleased to do when we're walking in obedience to him daily, when it satisfies his will and brings him glory and is for our good. The fourth thing, and we're going to close with this. I'm going to close this portion of the sermon. Boy, I've got a lot more to say. But we're going to close this portion of the sermon when we get to the end of this passage. We're going to pick up here. Where did we leave off? Verse 18. We'll pick up here in verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance. Now, that's an understatement, folks. Peter, get the context. Peter's in prison. 
He's got a soldier on either side of him that he's chained to. There are soldiers at the door of his cell, and there are soldiers at the door of the prison, and there is an iron gate. There are four squads of soldiers responsible for making sure that Peter's where he needs to be because Herod is going to kill him when the morning comes. And when the morning comes, Peter's gone. And the soldiers are still there. The chains are still there. The gates are closed. When the day came, there was no little disturbance. Another way of saying, there was a great disturbance. What in the world is going on? Wouldn't you have hated to be been one of those soldiers? Among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries. He questioned the guards. He ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Let, let me just make a point here. Here's the next statement I want you to write down. You need to not expect unbelievers to see God's work even when it happens right in front of them. You need to not expect unbelievers to see God's work even when it happens right in front of them. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you that if you're not careful, you can miss God's working even when it happens right in front of you. We can pray for something and expect something and hope for something and ask God to do something and then miss it. Let it slide right on by and, and say, well, look, look what we did. Not look what God did. Look what we were able to accomplish. Not look how God worked in this situation and moved. And we need to recognize, folks, that for the world who does not know God, they are blinded to His light, to spiritual understanding, to His, his moving and working in the world. Herod doesn't know what happens or how it happens. He blames the guards. And, and we need to understand that we can be like the, like the Christians who are praying at uh, Mary's house, not attentive to God answering our prayers. By the way, the people who are walking closest to God are the people who are the most joyous and have the most attitude of thanksgiving and gratefulness. Why? Because these are the people who see God moving and working most consistently. It's not that God is not continually moving and working. It's that sometimes we get so burdened and we get so focused on circumstances and we get so overwhelmed with life that we take our eyes off of God and our awareness off of what he's doing. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is an addendum to the story. This is Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa I, by the way. There's another one that we come across later in the book of Acts. We have four in the New Testament. This is the same Herod that put James to death. And he's angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. These are countries to the northwest. And they came to him in one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now, we don't know exactly what was taking place here. We know that this was political machinations, political maneuvering. We know that Herod had cut off these neighboring kingdoms from their supplies, and they needed the food. And so they came to make things right and to restore trade from Judea to Tyre and Sidon. On an appointed day, they made an appointment, Herod put on his royal robes 
and he took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. He spoke. He made a speech. This is a kingly speech. And the people were shouting in the crowd, The voice of a God and not of a man. Sorry, it may not be a... But you understand what's taking place. They're flattering. Oh, you're the best. That's not just a man's voice. Oh, because it's flattery. Now, here's the problem. Herod accepted their flattery. All right? Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. I'm not God. There is a God. No, he took it. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. How's that for an obituary? How's that for an obituary? Now, I want you to get the picture. Because as a kid, this was fascinating to me. I was all about kings and knights and horses and all that sort of thing. Here's Herod in his kingly robes. And he's seated on his throne. And he makes a speech before the people in oration. And they applaud him. And then they flatter him. And then they call him a god. And he's like, yes. And God's like, no. And he dies. How does he die? He's eaten with worms. That's a graphic depiction. Now, is there a point to be made? Yes, I think there's a point to be made. Listen to me. Herod was the one who was persecuting the church. Herod was the one who put James to death. Herod who's the one who was who imprisoned Peter and sought to kill him. And here's a statement that you and I can rejoice over. No opponent finally triumphs over God. No opponent finally triumphs over God. Yes, there may be sorrow for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Yes, there will be suffering this side of heaven, but there is a day coming where there will be no sorrow and no pain. Yes, there are times when believers suffer seemingly without cause and without purpose, and yet God uses all things for His glory and for the good of His work in the world and for the good of His people as a refining process. And we have read the end of the book, folks. We win. We can be faithful and not lose heart because Jesus has overcome the world. He has defeated the consequences of sin. He has washed us and He has cleansed us and He has made us His home. He has prepared a place for us. And there is coming a day when He will receive us unto Himself. We have a God who loves us amazingly. Why is it that my prayers don't work? It's God who works. It's God who always gives the right answer. He is too kind to be capricious. He is too wise to make mistakes. He cares for us. And when we cannot trace His hand, we can always trust His heart. Thank you.